Welcome to War Machine, a podcast for theological nomads. In this episode, Matt speaks with philosopher of mind and metaphysics, Peter S. Hughes, who specializes in the thought of Whitehead, Nietzsche, and Spinoza, and in fields pertaining to panpsychism and altered states of consciousness. Peter is a research fellow and lecturer at the University of Exeter and author and co-editor of several books. Be sure to check the show notes, where you'll find links to Peter's writings and other projects. We're at warmachinepodcast.com. Enjoy. Enjoy. Well, uh, my name's pronounced Peter Shostak-Hughes. I'm a, a doctor of metaphysics, or a philosopher of mind and metaphysics. I'm a lecturer at the University of Exeter in Britain. I work on sort of classic metaphysics in many ways, um, especially the work of Spinoza, Alfred North Whitehead, Nietzsche, some others, William James. Um, but I've worked in analytic philosophy a lot as well. I've taught metaphysics and I teach philosophy of mind, but to the psychology students, interestingly. Got a PhD in panpsychism. I didn't realize that was a thing. Where'd you get that? What, the PhD in panpsychism? Yeah. Um, I got that at Exeter University, actually. So oh, okay. okay. Working, yeah. That was with um, originally with uh, Michael Hauskeller, who was the first um, person to introduce Whitehead to a German audience. So he wrote an introduction to Whitehead in German. So he was my supervisor, yeah. Um, so that was fun. And um, yeah, author of three books, the latest of which is this edited volume that I edited with Christine Hauskeller, Philosophy and Psychedelics, Bloomsbury Academic, 15 chapters from various authors about the intersection between philosophy and psychedelics. So that's my main field at the moment. So I'm sort of applying metaphysics, philosophy of mind onto this new emerging field of psychedelic science or psychedelic research and therapy. Yeah. How's the reception been to uh, the book so far? It's been out for a little while, yeah? Yeah. Um, paperback came out a few months ago, um, so it's affordable now. Um, <laughs> reaction's been, you know, I mean, you know, I say the reaction's been good, but obviously you know, I, only, I only hear the positive uh, things, really. Yeah. Uh, two main reviews, both pretty positive. One just came out last week, actually. Um, so, yeah, pretty positive. I mean, it's quite an academic book, though, so it's kind of, you know, the, yeah, I think it's sort of lost on some people. Uh, but uh, yeah, I'm pretty happy with it. Yeah. Sure, I can see people who are drawn to the title then kind of cracking it open and being, huh? <laughs> <laughs> I didn't sign up for this. It's a bit like, but... yeah, it's a bit like, a bit like many undergrad you know, people who think, yeah, I think I'll study philosophy, you know, I've got a philosophy of life, and then introduce the logic 101, you know, and they're like, what? <laughs> yeah, I remember in my at some point in my teens, I decided I would pursue philosophy. And uh, as a first step, I went to the local library and found like the smallest philosophy section with old dusty books that... I didn't recognize any of the names, of course, at the time. And then I'm pretty sure the first one I looked at was Kant because I gave up on the idea right away. <laughs> that was unfortunate. Yeah, well, that's critique or something. Yeah, that would put you off. Mm, yeah, so, yeah. Well. yeah. No, as you say, you're, uh, you're known for your, I think, your interest in, in work at the intersection of psychedelia and metaphysics and philosophy. Um, those are interests that I, I share uh, to some degree. Um now, I think it's a maybe a bit unusual, those two things coming together, maybe less so these days, uh, yeah. especially in academic space. But I was wondering if you wouldn't mind sharing how you initially picked up those two interests and, and what was it ultimately that led you to decide this is what I'm going to work on. This is the space I'm going to carve out. 
Mm, well, um, yeah, it was years ago. I was roped into when I was lecturing in London. I was uh, roped into um, teaching philosophy of religion, which at the time didn't really interest me. I, I was teaching philosophy of mind as well, and um, consciousness generally was my main interest. Although I must say, my master's was on Kant and Schelling. You know, my dissertation. So, anyway, I mean, the the master's dissertation was on Kant and Schelling in relation to intellectual intuition, which relates to the limits of self-consciousness. So, yeah, consciousness is always sort of um, my main interest. Anyway, I got into philosophy of religion, and then I was introduced to William James from that syllabus. And then, you know, uh, in, in his book, Varieties of Religious Experience and elsewhere, he, he says, you know, um, one can take psychoactive drugs to induce mystical states. And this sort of really interested me because this suddenly overlapped with my uh, interest in consciousness. And then he spoke about nitrous oxide, even spoke about alcohol as being, you know, the first step on the mystical consciousness ladder, as it were. Stairway, I should say, not to mix metaphors. And um, and then it just so happened that I, I found some magic mushrooms in my village in Cornwall. Uh, my brother helped me identify them. And then I took those and it was just an incredible experience. And then that experience alone, uh, that's really what sort of, that was what made me pursue this career because it's just so intrinsically fascinating. I mean, so overwhelmingly beautiful and intellectually stimulating. And um, so I looked for works in philosophy on psychedelics and there were relatively few, you know, there was William James then, um, Aldous Huxley's kind of pop philosopher, you know, um, and so on. So I thought I'd try to, I'd have a stab at sort of writing a bit more detail about it. I mean, subsequently, I learned there was some philosophy, you know, in the past about it, but H.H. Uh, H. Price, perhaps, people like that, Gerald Heard, but not much. Um, so I had a stab, I wrote Pneumonautics 2015. Um, I couldn't do a PhD on psychedelics because no one could supervise it, you know, no one's expert enough and people just don't know about it because it's been, you know, <laughs> hasn't been studied. Um, so I did it on panpsychism. But then at the end of my PhD, I got some money to organize a conference on philosophy and psychedelics and um then covid hit so it was online but that was quite successful and then we did another one and then i started teaming up with celia morgan in the psychology department at exeter um because she's worked on ketamine for about 10 years or more and then we started this colloquium in psychedelic research at exeter which is still well still young and going now every two weeks we have um, a speaker we've got osiris gonzalez romero coming tomorrow or thursday rather and um yeah and then in january begins the first ever in europe at least postgraduate course in psychedelics called psychedelics mind medicine culture so it's not just the medicine there will be the clinical applications and everything celia morgan's team will be part of that um but also it will be the philosophy so we'll look at the ethics you know behind patents uh, appropriation and so on and so forth you know uh, cognitive liberty and law in relation to psychedelics but also we'll be looking at the metaphysics of mind in relation to the, and the phenomenology of psychedelic experiences as well as you know a number of other things so so that's happening in january 2024 starting then so yeah it's all it's all flowing smoothly really at the moment that sounds amazing and that kind of thing could only happen now Right. I mean, so much has changed in terms of psychedelics and maybe we'll talk about that too. But are you still a practitioner? Do you consider yourself a, a psychonaut? Uh yeah, I'm always a psychonaut. I mean, you know, yeah. I, I I I gain altered states of consciousness just before sleep and hypnagogic hallucinations, you know, and so on. As I said, I, I'm going to learn holotropic breath work next week. And um and yeah, you know, I mean, there's an abundance of mushrooms that go around Cornwall and Exeter, mm -hmm. Devon. Mm -hmm. Yeah, right. So what what's the most uh bizarre experience you've ever had with uh 
psychedelics? Strongest experience I've ever had is with 5-MeO-DMT, which is um, comes from the Sonoran Desert Toad or other, other bushes, or you can get it synthetically. But you smoke that. What happened to me was I smoked it. I think I took too much accidentally. In the space of a few seconds, I, I went blind. I went deaf. I lost my thinking capacity. I thought I was going to die. Fear. And then nothing but then suddenly white light, extreme white light, not a white tunnel, just everything was white, maybe some sort of multicolored hexagon sort of faintly there. And anyway, most just white. And then suddenly my sense of time disappeared. Boom, gone, but not gone at all. Then the sense of extreme profundity remained, like a, a sense of extreme importance, but without an object, interestingly. So no intentionality. And um, that lasted like 10 Earth minutes. And then you sort of slowly come out of it and you just sort of, for the first time at least, you know, you're sweating and swearing and (laughs) you can't really (laughs) believe what happened. Yeah. So it's called the God molecule, you know. So I took that because I heard it was like the drug that is most likely to induce the so-called unitive state, a very ambiguous term. Um, Yeah. Yeah. So I took that for academic reasons. And um, then I wrote about it in uh, in that book I showed you, Philosophy and Psychedelics. There's a chapter on Spinozism and the psychedelic intellectual level of God. Oh, I want to talk about Spinoza. I've never had the chance to um, try DMT. That didn't exist as far as I know back when I was doing all that stuff. But, you know, having spent quite a bit of time with psychedelics, you know, especially in my teens and 20s, I remember having the sense that these kinds of altered states, somehow they were more real that somehow these substances were affording me a peek behind the curtain, so to speak, right? And being confronted with just the other strangeness of reality. And and I think importantly, how everything is in constant, or at least appears to be in constant movement. And reflecting on those kinds of experiences, there's different ways of doing it, I suppose, and doing that within a panpsychist context, I think is interesting uh, in some ways, but I'm not really sure uh, what the right question is there? What's at stake in that question? Why does why does it matter to think about the psychedelic experience within a panpsychist framework? Is that primarily a theological concern, or or what is it? Yeah, it's a big question. I mean, a number of things I can say. There was, I suppose, I'll start with this study from 2021 from Imperial College, Chris Timmerman and others. Um, there was this empirical study there in London, um, and it showed that. Well, this one study showed that. There was a general shift away from the metaphysical view of physicalism to panpsychism. That was seen as a general shift um, after psychedelic use. So, so that was just descriptive. So, as a philosopher, you come in, you th- you just ask, like, well, why? You know, why did that happen? And um, well, I, you know, something I'm working on at the moment, sort of slowly. But um, other studies have shown that psychedelics also amplify this sense of nature connectedness you know uh again a vague term but we can go into if you like but i think it's different degrees of nature to connectedness so there's like um a slightly greater appreciation of natural beauty there's a kind of a high level there's a shift you know an ecological shift of views at a higher level still there are reports that you sort of think you've become one with the plant whatever it may be and at an even higher level i think the unitive state can be seen as as the highest level of nature connectedness in other words you become one with nature right which is the unitive state uh whether that is a difference of degree or a difference of kind is an interesting phenomenological question that hasn't really ever been properly addressed um so there's a lot of work to be done by philosophers here so then the question becomes well 
Well, first of all, I should say that those those studies with nature connectedness, uh, they are related to mental health. So it seems that amplifying your sense of nature connectedness uh, is conducive to mental health benefits, however you define those, right? And I'm skeptical about mental health and so on. But anyway, those are the general findings. And um, an article I wrote recently, which called on the need for metaphysics and psychedelic research and therapy, I aim to show that you can understand that form of nature connectedness through a metaphysics, like Whitehead's theory of prehension, for example, or maybe Spinoza's infinite intellect or something like this. Um, there are many ways to interpret it in many metaphysical systems. And by showing people that who have no idea about metaphysics whatsoever, who thinks either you're like a materialist or you're a Christian, something like this, um, or a dualist or whatever, by showing them that there's a multitude of uh, system, metaphysical ways of looking at this, conjecture is that they will be able to take that experience more seriously, not dismiss it as delusional when they fall back to the ideology of their culture. Right. And thus, you know, like in clinical terms, you might actually amplify longer term therapeutic outcomes. Right. I mean, that's just at the clinical level, which at the moment, psychedelic renaissance is in, you know, we're in the clinical stage again. That's one way in which you can use philosophy, you know, metaphysics and phenomenology for a start, and ultimately for an ethical reason. So three three aspects of philosophy. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, on the point about clinical use, uh, I was wondering what you make of that in a in a general sense. Like I was alluding to before, it was only a few years ago that I was hearing any sort of positive research about psychedelics and research into treating PTSD and depression and stuff like that. And, and that was exciting. And now here, just a few years later, uh, I'll go on social media and I have ads for microdosing kits. It's just become commodified. Yeah. You can buy microdosing kits. Oh, I thought you said, I thought you said microdosing kids, like children. <laughs> well, I haven't heard that yet. <laughs> yeah. We've come a long way. You <laughs> um, shifted very quickly. Yeah. yeah. And you can buy these kits that are all together. You know, you, you just uh, basically inoculate your substrate flip the switch and it walk away from it. It's kind of incredible. And, you know, part of me feels really cynical about that turn, but I also sometimes wonder if maybe the more normalized and and, and widespread it becomes what the, uh, what the knock-on effects of that might be, because I think there's the possibility of a sort of Trojan horse situation. I think people who are commodifying this stuff don't really know what they're playing around with. Um, yeah. And they don't realize that these compounds, at least in my experience, have a, uh, a fair amount of agency um, and can, uh, as you were saying earlier, can set you off on a completely different trajectory. So I'm just kind of curious if you have any thoughts about the uh, aggregate effects to society, that kind of that kind of thing. Yeah, um, it's a tricky question because so you've got, you know, on one side propaganda against psychedelics and at the same time you've got clinical takeover, as it were, of psychedelics. Um, so I see this as, in a Hegelian sense, as a necessary step to the full unraveling of the geist of psychedelics, right? So by which I mean is that because we have got such bad press, such bad connotations with psychedelic drugs, um, because of this, it's almost necessary to swing the pendulum in the other direction and sort of promote it fully, you know, to neutralize that bad press. Um, I think most people, you know, most people can't be against therapy, right? So it seems like probably the only way you can overcome this bad press is by talking about psychedelics in terms of therapy at this stage. And this is what's happening. And I'm in favor of that. 
Um, I mean, people still go into prison for this, you know, so it's, it's, well, yeah. it, they are, but it's funny you mentioned that this morning I had the news on, I don't usually, but they mentioned uh, here in New Jersey, there's a, um, a move to decriminalize. Uh, there's actually a, something on the floor of the house, I guess. Oh yeah. Great. I mean, you know, Australia's just decriminalized psilocybin and MDMA for clinical practice. Um, yeah. Oregon states in the U S have, um, have begun that procedure and I see it continuing really. Probably. Um, Britain's another issue, another <laughs> problem. But anyway, so I am in favor of this phase, this phase in the history of Western psychedelics, but I see it as a phase, not an end point. And the fear always is gatekeeping. You know, who's really in charge of these powerful chemicals? Is it the clinic or the government or corporations or indigenous people or hippies, new age? You know, everyone makes stakes a claim. But really, I think they sort of transcend all of those claims, you know, they don't belong to anyone. So you have to sort of always, in my view, keep keep them open, keep them open to use. But at the same time, you know, be cautious of the use because they are very powerful. See, you know, the future, I see outside of the clinic, you know, I see it as societal enrichment, ultimately. Yeah, no, it'll be interesting to see how that develops. I, as you suggest, I think it's going in one direction. Hopefully it'll, it'll you know, keep going in that direction. So we'll see. Um, but yeah, I wanted to talk a little bit about Spinoza because I, I don't know, I guess I consider myself something of a nominal Spinozist. And uh, I was reading through the chapter that uh, that you mentioned earlier from the uh, uh, Psychedelics and Philosophy book, or is it is it the other way around? Sorry. Psychedelics, I think, yeah. yeah. Yep. And there's a little uh, quote here. It says, because they are fundamentally identical, mind cannot have emerged from matter in the animal past, nor can mind emerge from matter in the present neither diachronically within gestation nor synchronously from extensive brain to thinking mind. Uh, such common belief betrays an inherent and unwitting dualism. And I, I guess maybe this isn't so much of a Spinoza question, but just uh, it's a question about panpsychism. I don't really have a strong position either way, whether it's emergent or ubiquitous. I, I think panpsychism is certainly plausible and has important implications for how we think about, I don't know, the paranormal, for example, and other kinds of things. But I'm not sure why an emergentist view would necessarily imply a dualism. It, it seems to me like the framing of the question kind of belies a dualism, right? Because if you want to go, here's where the Spinoza part comes in. If you want to go along with Spinoza along the lines of parallelism, then it can never really be an either or. Specifically, there would be no criteria by which you could make the distinction. Between mind and matter, you mean? Right, to kind of adjudicate between emergentism or panpsychism. Mm, no way to adjudicate between panpsychism and... Well, I mean, that's... What, okay, so it sort of depends what one means by emergentism. Um, mm. And there are varieties of panpsychism, so that, you know, in theory, you could have an emergentist variety of it. And in many ways, perhaps, for example, integrated information theory, or at least the panpsychological version of that, is a form of emergentism. So when you've got... a a uh, sufficiently integrated system, then phi emerges out of it, perhaps, hmm. as opposed to being identical to it. So, I mean, this is really, it comes down to the question of the difference between identity, the identity theory, the monism, or the non-identity theory, um, emergentism, as it's generally understood. I favour the identity theory, but not in the sort of mid-20th century view that, you know, you can... Um, you can identify mind with matter, by which they mean neural matter, brain matter, but rather that they are, in the Spinoza sense, they're both expressions 
of something more fundamental. Um, and this means that even though they are the same thing, like you know, a classic philosophical example is the morning star and the evening star, both being Venus, even though they are the same thing, they appear differently to us, mind right. and matter. But how do, how does one come up? So that is an interesting, I mean, that is a deep question for a monist, you know, if they are the same thing, why do they appear different? And I haven't got a full answer to that, but I will I will go to Whitehead and Russell and people like this who say that our understanding of what matter is, not mind, but matter, is insufficient. In other words, it is an abstraction, which doesn't mean it's false, but it means it's part of the truth. The idea being that as we understand matter, matter energy more and more, We'll understand that mentality is an aspect of matter. Um, so that's why they appear different, because we we have insufficient cognitions, cognizances of mind and matter. And because of that insufficiency, they appear different. But if we had, as it were, God's eye view, right? The uh oh Lord, uh, here we go. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the uh the view from nowhere, as it were, or God's view, yeah. We would yeah. see the, the sufficiency and we'd see that, you know, what is appears to be a contradiction actually is an identity, much like the mystics, you know, the sort of um the overcoming of paradoxes in the mystical state. Yeah, I think that I think that's fair. That's probably the only way to not necessarily resolve that, but to respond <laughs> to it. I think yeah, uh, no, it's it's not a full response because it's just pointing the way. So, you know, the, yeah, the, yeah. the actual, you know, determination of that would be to find you know the the full properties of matter energy but the problem there is right immediately is like the the problem of privacy or the problem of other minds which is that it seems that one property of the mind which is, differentiates it from matter is that it cannot be empirically measured so we can empirically measure the correlates like you know the physiology for example but that's just an inference you know so we see that and because we know in the past that that's correlated to mind therefore we infer mind but we can't actually see the mind directly and so if matter did have this other property um the method of determining it would have to go beyond the methods of science that we currently have at least yeah something that's more radically empiricist perhaps yeah radically empiricist yeah it requires um a new form of science in yeah. science in the you know the original sense of being sort of methodological investigation mm. yeah well, that's interesting. When I spoke with Matt Seagal or Seagal, I'm not sure how you say it. Um, Seagal, apparently, yeah, like the bird. I always say it's like Seagal, but that's yeah, because I grew up with those with those um, Seagal movies, you know, where he's breaking arms every two seconds. He's <laughs> <laughs> not like that. No. no, I know. He's a little bit different. But um, yeah, he was saying something along uh, similar lines about, you know, the emergence of, uh, you know, a new uh, methodology for scientific inquiry and so on. And um I'm supportive of that in theory. I, I don't know exactly what that means in real terms, but... Um, I think it's a negative critique. I mean, he's a fellow Whiteheadian, so we've got similar um, thoughts, but um, it's it's a negative critique. It's just basically saying we don't know enough yet to determine this. And thus, as a result, we shouldn't settle with anything at the moment and be open-minded to yeah. other views. And then there's, for parsimonious reasons, for example, there's reasons to prefer that panpsychism. But you make the case. I mean, it's never definite, these these arguments, you know, metaphysics. Yeah, of course. Yeah, but since we're talking about uh, ways of considering a problem, ways of uh, thinking, modes of sentience, I guess, right? I wanted to ask you about Spinoza's uh, third form of knowledge, intuition, where one becomes, as you, as you say, cognizant of essences under the aspect of eternity. It sounds wonderful. 
Um, and then there's this sense of collapsing into eternity. And, and for a rationalist like Spinoza sounds, you know, very mystical. Can you talk about the mysticism you find in Spinoza and yeah. what import that has for your thought and work? Well, you know, it's a very controversial point, really, because in the ethics, the very last part of it, he talks about this third kind of knowledge intuition leading to so-called intellectual love of God. Then, you know, through the centuries, people have interpreted this in different ways. And the reason is that it's very ambiguous in the text. But you can see, I mean, you can look at the short treatise, for example, his earlier books and, and sort of um, try to make sense of it and his letters and so on, you know, to get a, a more of a definite grasp. I think my view is somewhat standard. It's the same as Timothy Spriggs, for example, uh, and a number of other scholars. But like I say, it's an interpretation. And um, so the third kind of knowledge. Well, so it's interesting that a lot of people love, you know, Spinoza because he does away with dualism. You know, the mind and the body are the same thing. Atheists love this, of course, generally speaking. So when the body dies, the mind seems to die with it. But interestingly, at the end of the book, he says, although there is that parallelism between mind and body, um, death is not the end. Something remains, which is eternal. And by eternal, he means timeless, outside of time. Of course. And then he goes into third kind of knowledge and the intellectual love of God. And so uh, my understanding of it is, is somewhat mystical. And you have to understand that although he was you know, a rationalist and the ethics was penned in the geometric method with axioms, logical propositions and whatnot. Nonetheless, he did have influences partly from what you might consider mysticism. So Herrera, for example, uh, the Kabbalah, to a certain extent, he was critical of the Kabbalah, but also he took some inspiration for it, as you can see in certain letters and books. Um, also Maimonides and people like this. But I think there's a mystical aspect to the end of the book where, because he says... Third kind of knowledge, which is opinion or empirical belief. Um, it's not the second kind of knowledge, which is reason or science, as we understand it today, logic. But it's a pure awareness of substance, the one substance, which he also calls nature of God. You know, Kant spoke about this. This is what I did my master's dissertation on, interestingly. He talks about intellectual intuition, um, which is a form of intuition where you don't represent something in your own way, but you actually become one with that thing to fundamentally know it. You you become it, you are it. And Kant says this is impossible for human beings. Only God has intellectual intuition. We have empirical intuition. And that, in a way, was a response to Spinoza. So for Spinoza, there's two ways of representing substance nature, which are thought and extension, right? Mind and matter, very basically speaking, is not exactly the same thing. And this is prosaic consciousness. But you can also enter the essence of things, he says, which is to enter the one monistic thing, which is undifferentiated. And um, this is difficult and rare, but nonetheless, it's possible. So, yeah, what does this mean exactly? And it relates to life after death as well, he writes. So it's somewhat ambiguous, but the way I understand it is that um, it's a becoming one with the substance. So instead of representing the substance as mind and matter, you become one with it. And that is a kind of like, uh, that's classically considered to be the sort of peak mystical experience from you know Plotinus onward through. I mean, My interpretation, you know. So. I mean, it it seems like that's hard to avoid for a thinker who is hell bent on collapsing all of these dualisms, and that seems like a just a a matter of course that you would end up in some variety of mysticism. Yeah, and maybe maybe it's that that you see uh, like Deleuze. Deleuze has got two books on Spinoza, which is brilliant. You know, well, the first one's brilliant. Spinoza. I love the the, the short one is fantastic. I yeah, never yeah, that's, that's dig the into one. the other one. 
Yeah, the second one's not, not as good, but the short one's really good. Yeah, Spinoza Practical Philosophy. And he he speaks about this and he says, you know, with Spinoza, you can learn it intellectually, reading it for years, or you can get the flash of Spinozism, which is the oceanic feeling as Roland coins it, which is used today actually in psychedelic uh, questionnaires and whatever. But it's this intuition of the whole system, the whole pantheistic system, the whole monistic system in a flash, as it were. And in many ways, you could argue that, you know, maybe this was the inspiration for the later intellectualization of that intuition, that flash to rationalize it. Yeah, to like back his way into that. Yeah. Yeah. Whitehead said, you know, philosophy, the purpose of philosophy is to rationalize mysticism in the sense of, you know, the unknown. So, uh, you know, one can look at it that way. Some people have. Other people are very sort of, you know, against that mystical view of Spinoza. You get, you know, even today there's like a return of atheist um, materialist interpretations of Spinoza, interestingly. Yeah, I've overheard these kinds of conversations um, and kind of, you know, gone back and forth with this myself. Um, because on one hand, he's the most God-saturated person. On the other hand, you know, if you take him seriously and uh the identification of god with substance you can just discard with <laughs> i think i think it's possible to discard with the term god and still kind of arrive at the same place i i don't think spinoza would appreciate that but i think it's a va- i think it's a valid reading. i mean i think like i say there's been hundreds of years of debate about this really from well from 1780s with pantheism controversy but there's, you know, the phases we go through. There's a, a, a idealist interpretation, materialist, atheist interpretation, so on and so forth. You know? Yeah. You get a Spinoza. You get a Spinoza. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but I would say that it's, and he himself said he's not an atheist against accusations because of the idea of the infinite intellect, which is this, that if you accept the parallelism of mind and matter, in other words, both expressions, attributes are the same thing. That means all of space, everything in space, everything in physicality has um, its mirrored side in mind. This means that just as space is infinite, because every attribute, every expression is infinite in itself as well, um, so mind must be infinite. So the whole universe must have a mentality as well. Um, and this he calls God, of course. You know, there's the infinite intellect. I don't think most, most atheists would accept that, unless maybe you could say it's not like God Right, you shouldn't really define it as God because it's more like cosmopsychism, you know, like a background radiation of mentality or something like this. Um, I don't know how many, you know, what if an atheist would accept that, but possibly, you know. Um, but it it comes down, as always, in philosophy to definitions, how you define atheism, theism, God, you know. Oh yeah, no, totally. And this is why I, for me, Spinoza is like a proto-radical theologian, right? In the way that he completely disrupts those categories of theism and, and uh, atheism. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So he's important for me in, in that way. Um, he's a fantastic thinker. I mean, I don't accept everything he says. And, um, you know, I think Whitehead's kind of continuation of his thought. Well, yeah, you, you've mentioned Whitehead a couple of times and we haven't talked a lot about him, but one of the things that he, he talks about is the importance of aesthetic experience in shaping our understanding of, of reality. So I guess to try to connect this back to the conversation around psychedelics, how do you think maybe the aesthetics of the psychedelic experience can shed light on Whitehead's notion of kind of creative advance? Well, uh, for Whitehead, above God is the principle of creativity. And that's really a drive to aesthetic complexity and intensity, emotional intensity. This is the main telos of God. 
to achieve instances of aesthetic appreciation, interestingly. So art is not just a byproduct of our evolution of survival, you know, it's actually the primal, beyond the survival instinct, you know, art or beauty or the sublime is the creative impulse. So with regard to psychedelic experience, quite interesting. So like with uh, Silas Ivan, for example, one can achieve moments of extreme aesthetic appreciation, you know, like beyond what you could imagine. Um, like incredible. It's just, well, I won't dwell on the point, but anyway, beyond imagination, beyond. It's okay. Dream. If you want to dwell on it, you can. Uh, I've, I have too many times now. <laughs> so, All right. So, so anyway, like the beauty and the sense of the sublime um, that is intensified tenfold at least. So for Whitehead, um, he's a panentheist. So he believes God is nature like Spinoza, but God is also more than nature because he, he has this. Um, theory of eternal objects which are transcendent forms and platonism almost and um and potentials so so this god he his consequential nature everything that we experience everything that's experienced within nature is part of his experience as well so with psychedelics you know you achieve these aesthetic heights which in a way achieves you could say it's like you know the meaning of life in many ways right because this is ultimately what god is aiming for so little peaks um, achieving this this highest form beyond morality, even you know, beyond survival. I mean, I wouldn't say this is what why it's you know main meaning of life is to take psychedelics. Of course not, right? But beyond that, it's a creative advance, a bit like Bergson's creative evolution, where there is this drive, and it's a kind of telos. Then, so it's a movement towards an ideal of beauty through complexity. So our evolution is moving towards that essentially for him it's the idealism in the sense that there's an ideal and uh it's uh, certainly not a form of neo-darwinian thought but um i'm quite sympathetic to forms of to the idea of higher teloi you know that operate upon us subconsciously so i think it's, it's this kind of beautiful argument is speculative metaphysics so in other words he's making a big system and then that's something that can be criticized and tested and so on. So I'm, you know, I'm skeptical of the details of Whitehead's system, um, but also allows for total freedom in the future, you know? So by creativity, he doesn't just mean what, you know, we can freely will or whatever. He even means the laws of nature are in a creative flow. He says, you know, the three dimensions of space is just a passing phase where it's currently in an electromagnetic era. Um, but there's no necessity to three dimensions, no necessity to electromagnetism, gravity or whatever. And the arbitrariness of the laws of nature suggests that they are a phase rather than um, absolute, like Spinoza would have them, you know. They're, they're habits. Yeah, habits, regularities, as Hume himself, you know, proposed. Mm. Yeah. All right. I, I'd love to uh, maybe pick up the conversation on Whitehead another time, but I have a couple of questions. I went on Facebook this morning and said, hey, I'm going to be talking to Peter, what should I ask him? And Trip Fuller, who I think you met, he wanted me to ask you about your first Pliny the Elder in Claremont. By which he means a beer, right? So, yeah, yeah. He uh, well, um, so so Trip is uh, you know as as is as is well known, a beer fanatic, um, and he brought all these amazing beers to this conference. This conference on Whitehead, he he held saved for me this particularly rare beer. Which I'm very grateful for is really strong, you know, tasteful, flavoursome beer. She've never had anything like it really in Britain. So, um, yeah, my 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 response to that is delicious. Thank you, and 
bring another one next time. There you go. All right. And the other one was um, from Burke. And I'm not going to say his name. It's I think it's German. I'm going to call him Burke G. Um, <laughs> uh, he needs to know the story about Karnak. Uh, I, don't, I don't know what he's talking about. <laughs> okay. So in um, Numenautics, my book of 2015, my first book, um, there's a chapter in it called Neo-Nihilism, which is just really a sort of 11,000 word essay on merging the thought of Nietzsche, Hume and Schopenhauer in terms of meta-ethics. So the, the general claim in that book is, it goes into, you know, it's, it's kind of written in a forceful style, an artistic style I was experimenting with at the time. But it still makes quite detailed logical claims about if clauses and so on, subjunctive conditionals in relation to morality. And the ultimate judgment is that there is no objective morality. It is Nietzsche, you know, pretty much. But it uses Schopenhauer. You see, Schopenhauer influenced Nietzsche. I mean, Schopenhauer even Schopenhauer even used the term uh, slave morals, right? For example, mm, mm. and Hume. You know, Hume's guilty yeah. and so on. So, um, no art from his. Yeah, that's Hume. Yeah. So, and then Schopenhauer saying that you know normative morality. You know, you ought to do this or you shouldn't do that or whatever. That comes from the Bible, the Ten Commandments. Essentially, it's and um, it's something that Kant assumed morality was but we, we don't need to assume prescriptive morality we need to um but, but simply a descriptive morality fundamentally it meant that there are many subjective values as a panpsychist i think the world is flooded with values you know every sentience has in itself canatus you know a value system however there's no one that overrides all the others so many moral dilemmas really are akin to asking whether tea is better than coffee you know something like that Anyway, so I made that case. And uh, the Karnak thing is this Warren Ellis, who writes a lot of comic books, uh, quite well known comic book writers, apparently, and films. Um, he read that at the same time, he was tasked by Marvel to recreate an old character called Karnak, who's who he was part of the Inhumans family. And his superpower was to find the flaw in anything. So like in a wall, he could touch a wall and it would crack or in a um, philosophical system or whatever. Right? I, love, I love this guy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and then the comic series came out, Karnak, and the TV show, actually, The Inhumans, which wasn't particularly good, but the comic was good. And yeah, so he wrote in his blog that this recreation of Karnak was partly inspired by my little book, Neonalism. So uh, yeah, that's my little uh, claim to fame with regard to Marvel. <laughs> Okay. Yeah. I, I think I was aware of that. I remember hearing you talking about that on the uh, Catacombic Machine podcast several years ago, yeah. which I was a, yeah. a, a part of for a while. But uh, Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, people ask me that all the time. Yeah. So I'm kind of bored of talking about it now, really, But Well, I'm sorry. I'm, you know, I'm sorry I brought it up. No, 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 it's <laughs> it's really cool, though. I mean, years, yeah, so, not yeah. many people can can make that claim. So, I mean, I'd like to create a superhero someday or, or inspire a super uh, the creation yeah. of a superhero. Yeah, no, it's pretty cool. Yeah, so actually, I don't mind being asked about it. All right, all right. So, uh, what's next for you? I know you, you're going to be busy starting in January, or if, if not beforehand, are you going to be doing uh, doing any writing these days, or what, what's next for you? Yeah, I uh, I've actually been hired by this company called Beyond Belief, part of Aish, this Jewish company organization, to write public articles every two months. So I'm, I'm always doing that. I just wrote one on what is sentience one on nature's embrace and so on so on. but you know no references not academics so it's accessible so i'm writing that every two months but they're just like a thousand words um i've got this academic article i wrote on the need for metaphysics psychedelic research and therapy that needs to be pursued so i need to create 
a manual, like a metaphysics manual for practitioners and participants and the general public about, you know, just introduction to metaphysics. So not an intro, like a undergraduate textbook, but something that is accessible to everyone. Uh, that sounds um, great. That's a great project. Do you, do you need a graphic designer? Uh, yeah, possibly. Yeah. Yeah. Graphic I, okay. yeah, yeah. I am. I would, I would love to work on that. Yeah. That, that sounds I awesome. Am. Yeah. Okay. Let's talk later then. Yeah. Brilliant. Um, and then, um, so do that also a course for therapists, you know, and just to give them that additional tool of understanding metaphysics a little bit. Um, that's another project I've got. We're developing now the PG certificate in philosophy in psychedelics, mind, medicine, culture. That's going to be an online course. So it's open to the world, but there will be, you know, synchronous live sessions. We'll have guest lecturers as well, you know, like big names in the psychedelic field. I won't say who yet. Um, and then, uh, what else? Yeah, just, um, I'm teaching philosophy of mind, you know, soon again in psychology. Uh, I'm teaching philosophy and psychedelics at Exeter as well, just a sort of separate module. And um, learning breathwork next week. I'm part of a holotropic breathwork organization in America. So sort of pushing that a bit. Um, work to be done with the Center for Process Studies, Whitehead organization. Interestingly, I was I was last year, last time I thought I need to get into the British Hegelians. You know, funnily enough, I've got the book here. Uh, the Absolute Idealists, Americans as well as British. And um, I was reading mostly F.H. Bradley there, who was like the key one. But then I thought, why am I, why, why didn't I just read Hegel? You know, I mean, I was taught Hegel at Warwick University by Stephen Holgate about 20 years ago, but I thought I need to return to Hegel. So I've actually been reading a lot of Hegel recently again. Oh, because why? Because, you know, I'm just interested in, I think, um, theories of the overmind, you know, theories of pantheism or panentheism, cosmopsychism, how it relates to panpsychism. And uh, then I realized, well, you know, like in many ways, Hegel was a sort of pantheist, you know, so just getting familiar with his thought once again, reading the logic from the encyclopedia now. Mm, little light reading. Yeah, just for the weekend. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what are you working on? Oh, uh, well, you know, I have a nine to five. So um, in, in my other life, I, uh, which I'm supposed to be uh, on the clock, so to speak, yeah. now, I do uh, organizational change management kind of in the learning and development space, um, but it's okay. Um, kind of suits me. Um, there, you know, several years back, I was considering, I was like, oh, should I go back to school, do a PhD? I'm really into this philosophy and theology stuff. And then, you know, met a lot of folks who were degreed and within academia and they were all miserable. So I was like, all right, I'm not doing that. <laughs> I was like, I'll just keep but, doing yeah. the, the podcast thing and it keeps it fun. Yeah, at least wise choice. Yeah. I get to get I get to ask the questions I want, and uh, have the conversations I want, and not worry about all the politics and bullshit. So yes. I get to speak to incredible people like yourself. So yeah. it's 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 wonderful. Well, thanks. Yeah, no, there's a wise choice. I uh, I won't say any more, but yes, choose wisely. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, thanks for lovely to speak with you, and uh, I'm sure we'll speak again. I hope so. All right, man. Cheers. Thank you.